The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello to everybody. Thank you for joining the Capital Weekly Podcast. Uh, I'm John Howard, and I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Paul Mitchell, the veteran uh, numbers cruncher for elections and strategists and basically observer of all things political in California. Paul, thanks for coming. Of course. Thanks for having me. So we're 30 days out now. It seemed like a good time to take a look at the election. People are going to be starting to vote here momentarily by mail. Um, do you have any thoughts, overarching thoughts about this election? Anything strike you as things we ought to be looking at? Well, I think that um, we've been saying for a while that this election uh, might very well be determined by what voters are talking about, thinking about what issues are kind of in their forebrain as they go to the polls, uh, either you know voting by mail or going to the polls literally uh, this November. And this is always true, um, especially in elections like a midterm election, where um, kind of the what voters are focused on becomes really determinative to the outcome. And that's why, you know, everybody talks about historically that the party in power in a midterm election loses congressional seats, that it's kind of a, um, a counter election to the previous general presidential race. And that's true. But there's also a question of like, well, why is that true? And the reason why it's true is that in instances in elections, when we go back 100 years, where that midterm election was a a referendum on the party in power, and where people were either, you know, the, the voters who had control, like their party had control of the White House and Congress, they're like, oh, they're not doing enough. So they stay home. And those who are out of power are like, you know, more agitated, more likely to turn out and vote. And so there's this kind of like reaction election in the first midterm after a presidential election, especially one in which the party in power switches. And but a lot of the reason why is because the focus is on that party in power and a referendum on that new administration. That didn't happen in, you know, every election going back, um, you know, uh, and in some cases that referendum on the administration power was really positive, like, you know, Bush in 2002 uh, after 9-11, you know, the referendum on the party in power, the voters came back and said, we're all good. You know, Um, the challenge is that in this election, we have a very, very, very unique situation wherein the two things that are coming to the fore, um, both the uh, Roe v. Wade decision, and we've talked about this extensively even before it happened, um, and the uh, that decision in Dobbs that makes abortion kind of a, a top tier issue. And it's an issue where it's the party that's not in power has had policy gains. It's the, the actions of Congress and Trump in uh, twenty twenty and prior to appoint justices that that have that voters are you know looking at Republicans as having caused that, which is unique for a midterm. Um, and secondly, uh, Trump continues to be in the news, and the, this election could end up in some ways being a a referendum on 
the party not in power um, on the, you know, the reemergence of Trump as a central figure. And I think it's no accident that the January 6th committee is going to be coming out again with more of these hearings and more stuff uh, in the last weeks before the election, because if we go into election day and the top issues on the news and on people's minds are whatever the last thing, crazy thing Trump said or abortion, then Democrats should do better. If it goes back to what is your traditional midterm where it's a referendum on the party in power and the election goes back to kind of those fundamentals of what is Biden's favorables and what do voters think about how well Democrats are managing the economy or um, those issues, then then we should have Democrats losing tons of seats around the country and a reshaping of, you know, elections up and down the ballot, too. I mean, we could have some elections in California with a really bad year for Democrats have some outcomes that just aren't what we're expecting. Can you talk about uh, the quality of the candidates? I know that there is some real uh, opinion about whether or not the quality of the candidates in the Senate races specifically is is going to very much tip the hand toward the Democrats because the Republicans have nominated folks that are not really doing very well in their own races, in races that should have been seen as pickups. Is that going to happen in California? Do you, are you aware of any, you know, how that might play out in any congressional races or other races here? Well, um, so Republicans in California didn't make some of the same mistakes as Republicans nationally have. I mean, we have no Herschel Walkers um, really on the ballot uh, in these competitive congressional districts. Um, you know, the most competitive congressional districts are the ones where Republicans are the incumbents, Valadeo and Garcia. And Valadeo in particular has done an excellent job in his entire career winning in districts that have always been on paper Democratic and so, um, you know, we don't have those kind of Roy Moore type or Herschel Walker type candidates where the Republicans in California are, you know, kind of stepping on their own feet, um, you know, in who they select in the primary. But nationally, we do have two things going on, I think. One is the Senate level. We have some really bad candidate selection by Republicans that are giving Democrats opportunities in states where they might not really have been seen to be likely winners. Um, and if those Republican candidates do in the last month, you know, seemingly tank a little bit, um, I think there's an open question about whether or not there might be some down ballot effect on the congressional districts in those states and potentially help some Democrats who are running for a congressional district simply because some of the Republicans, like when Roy Moore was running for that Senate race, uh, some of the Republicans just kind of get disgusted with whatever's happening and they don't vote because the top of the ticket has kind of imploded. But that's still to be seen. I mean, Herschel Walker, I think, is the number one example. Um, and his uh, latest controversy his October surprise, um, you know, we might find that in three weeks, people aren't even talking about it anymore. I mean, you know, we were all talking about crudite in the doc in the Oz race, uh, you know, a month ago, and now, you know, voters move on and huh? now we're talking about dogs in the Oz race. They killed 300 dogs, but you know, eh. do you think, um, uh, the congressional races that, the races for Congress in California 
will have a decisive impact on who runs the House. As I understand it, they only need to, Republicans need to get a net of five seats and they win it. Yeah. So um, there's two ways to look at this. Um, one is that, you know, being able to win in the Valadeo district and the Garcia district are the two that would really jump out for Democrats to be able to win in those districts um, could both kind of get Democrats a little closer to holding the house. But then also there is this, essentially if Democrats win in those two districts, then that's a sign potentially that, uh, you know, Democrats are going to be doing better in other parts of the country as well, that the, you know, modeling and polling averages have been maybe not as kind to Democrats as it should have been. So one of the things that's weird is when you look at a lot of these models around the country and 538, I think, is kind of the best or most used model uh, for the House and Senate. It shows essentially like a 70-30 roughly chance for Democrats to uh, win the Senate. Uh, to have that majority or grow their majority in the U.S. Senate. But then it also shows a 70-30 chance for Republicans to uh, take a, take the House. And that seems kind of like odd. How can Democrats be doing so well that they're going to win all these Senate seats and then not be doing well enough to win yeah. these congressional districts? Now, part of that is redistricting. Uh, Republicans did a better job of, you know, back in the 2011 redistricting, of kind of gerrymandering these districts for Republican benefit. And a lot of those uh, uh, gains that they made that cycle still carried through. But uh, there's also this weird thing about it that even though it's 70-30 REAP in the House and 70-30 DEM in the Senate, there's actually a 60% chance that one of the parties is going to win both. So oh, wow. it means that if... Uh, if Democrats do a little bit better nationally than what is expected, then they'll probably win the House and the Senate. And if Republicans do a little better nationally than expected, that they could win the Senate and the and the House. So um, there's a possibility that you know we end up out of this thing with one party controlling both houses. Actually, a greater than fifty percent chance, and that's what's going to happen. You know, states differ on how they other electoral process goes, but, and some mail in and some don't, and there are a lot of differences there, but um, at the tail end of the, of the election campaign, when you're in the last week or two, uh, and things are really in balance, you're spending lots of money, you've already missed lots of voters who've already cast their ballots. And how do you factor that in? I know you do polling on this all the time, but how do you factor that in? How do you, how do you use that fact to you know, weight your results or view your results? Well, a few things. Um, so uh, first off in messaging side of it, um, if you do have an October surprise, you need to get it out of the beginning of October. October surprises are never going to be what they were before. I mean, it used to be that you drop an October surprise and, you know, October 30th or even November 1st, and there's this thing that happens where that issue becomes the top issue in the in the country or the top issue in that race. Yeah. And the other side doesn't have time to recover from it. And so like this Herschel Walker story with the abortions or the abortion that he paid for, if this was a all poll election voting and no, there was no vote by mail, that 
could have dropped two days before the election and all the voters would have that top of mind and Herschel Walker wouldn't have been able to figure out an appropriate response yet. Like you can see now, he still hasn't figured out an appropriate response right now. Um, but with all this time, you know, presumably the issues will change and things will move on by then. So the effect of those October surprises is a little bit more muted when you have to drop it earlier, because if you dropped it two days before the election, so many people would have voted that you'd not affect that many votes. Yeah. Um, but if you drop it too early, then your ability to keep that as like the dominant message for a month is kind of impossible. I mean, there's almost nothing you can have happen uh, that allows for that kind of issue to be dominant for an entire month. So October surprises, if they're going to be effective in in this environment, have to really be multiple surprises, multiple things to drag out through the entirety of the campaign. The second thing is that um, we know that people are voting over this month-long period. There's data to show who's traditionally voting early, who's traditionally voting late. There's data that PDI uh, puts out there um, to kind of model that and to be able to ensure that if you're spending money and you have limited resources, that you're sending those mailers to people who vote early uh, at the front end. You're saving your money to really hit the people who vote late towards uh, election day, and um, and you know you're managing your ad buys like if you're doing TV or digital or or traditional television um, or cable, then uh, you know really targeting those buys towards the time when you're going to get the most impact, um, which generally means starting earlier than we would have been you know, doing in the 90s or 2000s. You know what? It's really interesting the way that the, the campaign machinery has changed now that there's so much information. You know, you can tell when someone's voted. You know, PDI can look and see if someone's returned their ballot early and all that stuff. And I remember the last election, I was struck that, first off, I had voted, I think, two weeks before election day, you know, via mail. And yet on election night, at like 10 o'clock on election night. So it's over. I was still getting served ads from a candidate that was not my political party. It was really weird. Now that I thought somebody on her campaign really dropped the ball and wasted money. And I, you just don't see that that often, but that was the most egregious example. A, I'd already voted two weeks before that. B, why in the world would you be running an ad, you know, two hours after election closes? So- yeah, I mean, we used to make fun of people who would mail to the wrong district. That was like the cardinal sin in political consulting. And I remember seeing things like that. Um, there was one where it was like a mailer that was supposed to go to Congressional District 32 went to Senate District 32 or something like that. You know, things like that would happen every once in a while. But there is now the sin of you know, continuing to expend money on people who've already voted because there's really no reason to do it. Um, when you run a mail file, you can get that day's mail file to exclude anybody who up until then has returned a ballot and save sometimes a third of your resources, depending on what universe you're voting and when you're voting, when you're mailing this thing. Um, that's money you put towards other mailers. With uh, digital same thing. You can have digital ads going and create what's called an exclusion or suppression universe. And that is a second voter universe. It's just a list of everybody who's voted. And you have your ads say, send to this universe minus anybody who's in that universe. 
And again, you can save a third or quarter or half of your resources and put those towards other things. And so, yeah, that we do see a lot of misspent dollars. Um, and that's always kind of been the case, but there's not a lot of reason to be doing that. There's a, if, if a consultant is, is paying attention to the data and is being kind of an honest broker for their client and really focused on maximizing those resources, then, you know, you shouldn't be getting mailers after you voted. You shouldn't be getting phone mail, phone calls or text messages or digital ads, um, and when you are, generally, that's a mistake. Now, if you're getting those calls two days after you vote, like that's a, okay, you know, it takes a while for the county to process and report who's voted. But if you're getting that stuff two weeks after you voted, then somebody is dropping the ball. But nobody's sticking uh, lawn signs after the vote on your on your grass or anything. Lawn signs after you vote are found to be just as effective as lawn signs before you vote because 0% effective is just as much as 0% effective. <laughs> Let me ask I'm you about kidding. another race, um, and it's gotten some attention, uh, the race for state controller. Not a whole lot of statewide races this year are getting a lot of excitement, uh, but this one has generated some interest. Lani Chen is a Republican with an amazing background. I mean, Harvard Law School, law degree, Harvard PhD, uh, Harvard uh, uh, BA in uh, government. I mean, the guy is, you know, and he teaches at the Hoover Institution um, at Stanford. And uh, is it Malia? Malia Cohen is a uh, member of the board, was a member of the Board of Supervisors, chair of the Board of Equalization, and a Democrat. And in a state where Democrats rule, she clearly would be the front runner, as Gary South has pointed out to us many times. But this race is interesting because Malia Cohen has had some problems in the past, financial related problems, foreclosures on a house. Um, uh, her company would, was uh, in default in taxes and fees and the, and the franchise tax board went after them. Um, so the obvious narrative of the Republicans is that she's not a good fiscal steward, and, but yet wants the job of the person who signs California government paychecks. So. That's where we are. Does this race make any, do you see any impact of this race or that or her problems on, on, um, on the outcome of this race, which is we've assumed is likely to be Democratic? Yeah, so uh, Democrats have a two to one registration advantage. We haven't had a statewide uh, elected Republican uh, since uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, um, God, I'm blanking. Yeah, 2006, uh, I think. And I look yeah, at 2006. That, I think yeah, you know. And so, uh, you know, the uh, Poisoner, Poisoner and Schwarzenegger, and and Poisoner is now an independent, and Schwarzenegger is not exactly today's Republican Party. You know, I don't think he yeah. could get nominated for anything in today's Republican Party. Um, so, uh, you know, it'd be a real shock to get a Republican elected statewide. I think that you're pointing out these kind of negatives about Malia Cohen. Uh, that's probably way too in the weeds for most voters. They're not going to be paying that much attention to this race. Yeah. Um, it will, uh, you know, it, he might be more competitive than an average Republican, but it's going to be a challenge for him. I mean, Republicans statewide should kind of get 38% of the vote 
to go from 38 to 50% plus is a real, real, real heavy lift. Um, and so I think of all the statewides, it's the one that is kind of the most uh, in flux. It's the one that isn't a slam dunk for uh, the Democrat. But, um, you know, that being said, Republicans would really have to put a lot of resources in there um, in order to kind of carry him across the line. Um, you know, the I think that he's got some chance. Um, uh but I don't think it's I don't think it's significant. You get any any idea, any sense of turnout? That's always a hard. So one. turnout's always interesting. Um, traditionally, for a gubernatorial general election, uh, around fifty-six to sixty percent kind of turnout range. Now, of course, when we talk about turnout, we're still using the math of who voted divided by who's registered. Um, when we look back at 2014, only 17 million people were registered. So if somebody says, oh, you know, percent turnout compared to 2014, well, percentages, the numbers have changed. Sure. Um, it reminds me of the home run record when they stuck to the same home run record, even though they increased the number of games in a season, you know? Um, and so, uh, we might end up with 60% turnout but have it also be the most people that have voted in a gubernatorial general election ever. Kind of what happened in the primary. The primary was like people saying, oh, it's only 33% turnout. But again, that was the most individuals who have ever shown up to the polling place for a gubernatorial, gubernatorial primary in the state's history. Um, so- Interesting, that's a little fact that I'd never seen anywhere else. That's interesting. Yeah, so it's a- it's a function of the fact that we've grown the voter file to over 22 million people. And really it's hard to find people who aren't registered to vote. This is another little funny tidbit. I get every week or so now I get an email from somebody that says, Hey, have you seen a surge in women registering to vote after Dobbs? Because there was a lot of data about this around the country. And my answer is always, Nope, not in California. And you're not going to. Because we're at 85% of eligible voters being registered or, or more. Um, there's not that many unregistered people out there to go swarm to go register. If this was 2014 and we were at 65% of eligible voters registering and there were potentially millions of voters who were going to be active who hadn't registered or re-registered recently, then you could see surges. And we used to see surges in registration on nights of nights of the presidential primary elections, um, major news events would sometimes create surges in registration. Now that we have such full, complete voter registration, and now that we have the DMV constantly churning registration, and we have this thing in automatic registration that whenever you move, it automatically updates your registration, we just don't see those surges. And so, um, uh, yeah, the the issue about women being motivated might present itself in California in different ways, like turnout, but it's not presenting it in the same way as it is in other states with like big registration surges. And there's a direct correlation, do you think, between the registration, the percentage of registration of eligible voters, those who've actually registered, likely voters, and, and the results in the elections? Democrats obviously statewide been happy with this for a number of years. So I mean, well, they, what's interesting is that so turnout is a function of mechanical and environmental issues. When I say mechanical issues, I mean, how do you register to vote? How do you stay registered? How do you get your ballot? How do you return your ballot? 
you know, all of those things are the mechanical pieces of the election. In some states, they make it hard to register, hard to stay registered, hard to get a ballot, hard to show up to the polling place, hard to, you know, return your ballot or whatever. But in California, we've made all those mechanical things as easy as possible. There's no state, Colorado is right up there with us, but there's no state that does kind of a better job of fixing the mechanical pieces that should allow more people to vote and get more engagement. But the environmental piece is the other half. If the voters think that the election has nothing for them or um, there's no interest or whatever, then you can still have low turnout, even though you have all the mechanical pieces taken care of. It's just kind of like if you said, hey, the Kings, we're going to give you free parking we're going to give you better access to good seats. We're going to make the times of the games fit better with your schedule. We're going to make sure that there's open restaurants and and all this stuff about, you know, take care of all the mechanical pieces. People might not show up if the team sucks and if they're not excited. And the same thing's true with the elections. Yeah. We fix the mechanical pieces and then we stall these environmental pieces. Now, what's potentially interesting in that is if we, in those environmental uh, factors, have kind of an asymmetry in who is energized and motivated. So I think what Democrats are hoping is that, you know, the fear of Trump on the headlines all the time, he's going to run for president again. We make this a referendum on Trump and the fear of Dobbs and the prop one ballot measure and abortion being on the news, that that creates this asymm asymmetric environmental impact where the Democrats are getting more juiced up to vote than Republicans. And Republicans are hoping for the opposite. Republicans are hoping that, you know, abortion kind of dies off as an issue a little bit, that Trump stays quiet and doesn't announce that he's going to run for president right away, that uh, we have, you know, they've switched from talking about gas prices now to more about food prices. So they're saying like the cost of milk is higher, supply chain, economy, uh, interest rates, you know, war in Europe, uh, all this stuff. Maybe they're hoping that they get some asymmetric uh, environmental impacts in, and that it spikes turnout for Republicans in this cycle. So that's a lot of what the fight is now. Um, everybody's going to get a ballot. Everybody's going to have an easy time to vote. Um, but how much uh, is kind of in the water to kind of get that appetite for Democrats to turn out or for Republicans to turn out or in the middle there for the independents that are progressive to turn out versus the independents that are conservative. You see any big surprises coming? Uh, I don't know, local races, maybe LA mayor's race or um, ballot measures. Is, is there, uh, in short, is there anything you're going to, you know, run around the Capitol naked if it happens? <laughs> well, okay. I'll we'll be there I with mean, a camera. Okay. Yeah. I, I've, I've done that, been there, done that. Um, but the, uh, so the mayor's race is quote unquote tightening. Um, so the LA Times ran a story showing that the race was still double digit lead for Karen Bass, but then the lead had shrunk. What they kind of undersold was the fact that they had switched what you, what universe they were looking at. They had changed whether they were looking at all registered voters or likely voters and how those likely voters are determined and all that. So, um, but still Karen Bass should be winning that uh, mayor's race in LA. They're, the thing to watch is that Caruso is spending over $10 million on field. We've never seen that much field activity. So if the polling is suggesting that this group of Latinos and this group of independents and this group of renters 
are turning out to vote, and that's in the universe in which Karen Bass is winning. But somehow Caruso is able to identify additional Latinos and independents and renters and low turnout people who are going to vote for him and get them to return their ballots, then the polling would miss on what it perceived to be a likely voter universe. And Caruso could still win this if he's able to like really turn up the dial on getting more of these folks to vote that are in his camp. So the field you're saying, when you say field, you mean like the ground game? Yeah, like walking, uh, knocking on doors, phone calls, text messages, um, all of that organizing that's happening on the Caruso side is greater than we've ever seen for any campaign. Um, So uh, that's going to be the big question mark is whether or not that is able to kind of overcome Karen Bass's natural lead in in the polling. the congressional races, I mean, we're all going to be watching uh, the Valadeo and Garcia race. I feel like Levin and Porter um, are safer, um, both with the districts that were good for them in redistricting and also with kind of where they're at with fundraising and their opponents and all of that. Um, Harder is going to be in a challenging election, but I think that he should be okay. And Adam Gray is one of these districts that a lot of people haven't been talking about the 13th Congressional District as much. But, um, you know, Democrats need him to win that district. And he is kind of a great fit for it, being kind of one of the good old boy Democrats down there. Um, And so, uh, you know, it's not like Democrats, you know, nominated some super progressive or somebody who's kind of out of line with the rest of the district in in selecting Adam Gray. So, um, you know, if Democrats can win both of those seats, that would be something that I would put Democrats winning the Valadeo and Garcia seat. I'd put that as a surprising outcome that they'd be able to win both of those. Um, Not impossible or even maybe super unlikely, but if they win both of those, then we've got to really look nationally at whether or not Democrats are winning the House, which would break a lot of what we're seeing in the modeling. Yeah, I know uh, Matt Rexrod, when we had him on, he was talking about Valadeo is really just a perfect candidate for his seat. And he just like, he said, oh, they talk about how he's going to lose and they're going to be talking about how he's going to lose and he's just going to keep winning. You know, that was his attitude. Oh, good reason to feel that way. I mean, uh, Valadeo probably holds the record for the most wins and the most leaning Democratic registration districts in the country. I can't think of any other elected official who's been able to do that. Um, A large part of that is his district um, and the fact that, um, you know, Republicans can overperform in that part of the state. Um, The Democrats there are pretty soft in their partisanship, so they ticket split a lot more than other parts of the state. And the independents can be more conservative. And, um, and so, yeah, Valadeo is uh, a real, real, real hard candidate for Democrats to beat. Um, but that's why we have elections, you know, Paul Mitchell, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Thanks guys. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. And now let's talk about who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week, worst week, worst week, there were several possibilities this time. And look, Tim, you know, we were talking about this before. Eugene Yu, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Connect, 
which uh, provides election services, logistical services, tracking services for poll workers. They don't do uh, ballot counting and they don't get into ballot verification. But Eugene Yu was arrested. His company's based in Michigan, but the charges were filed in LA. Uh, he was arrested for theft and for allegedly criminally mishandling election information. He will be out in California facing the LA County uh, courts out here, I believe October 14th is his date, maybe a bit later in the month. Um, he definitely had a bad week. There are some other things going on with this case that make it even more interesting. Tim, uh, I know you follow this. What What's your take on it? I definitely think, I mean, anytime you're arrested, that's a bad week. Uh, and I think this is a really interesting story for a number of reasons. Uh, for me, first of which, you have George Gascon, uh, the district attorney of Los Angeles, who is anything but a hero to the right wing, is filing charges for this guy, Eugene Yu, who has been a target of some of the very far right election uh, skepticism. Uh, I think he, his, he and his company were featured in that, uh, two, I think it's 2000 Mules, the documentary that alleges that the election in 2020 was stolen. And so I just think there's this irony that you have this far, you know, perceived as far left district attorney, quote unquote, soft on crime. And he's the one actually bringing charges against this guy that is, according to the far right, the scourge of fair elections. So there's an irony there. Uh, and also the fact that this was treated only a few days ago as sort of this weird, quixotic thing that the uh, these election deniers were saying that this company had mishandled information related to the elections and that there were servers in China and all this stuff and it was poo-pooed. And then the next day, Cascone files these charges. To be clear, no one on the official, you know, in the Cascone side or you know, law enforcement is saying that voter data was compromised. It's poll worker data. So the information about the 1.8 million poll workers in the United States, their data was supposedly compromised according to the charges not the not the voter not you and me and the rest of the people on the vote they no one is saying well yeah. I shouldn't say no one no one in law enforcement is saying that 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 was uh yeah. part of the problem but i think the whole thing is just ironic that you have uh you know people who have been basically crying wolf as i see it for quite a long time about the 2020 election hey finally there's a wolf they got their wolf well, I think it's interesting that um, another interesting piece of this case is that Yu's um, company uh, is suing an outfit called TrueVote, which is has been for a number of years uh, among many well-known election deniers. In fact, that 2000 Mules, I think that you mentioned, I think they were involved in producing that. Uh, they have claimed that uh, data was misused by you, and you is claiming that he's been libeled, his company's been uh, libeled, he's filing suit against TrueVote, and TrueVote got, apparently got access, or did get access to Connect's information, and Connect wants to know how they got it. Well, a judge ruled in favor of Connect and said, TrueVote, you've gotta, uh, you've gotta tell where you got this information from. And they filed, uh, at the judge's direction, they filed, uh, where they got it. They identified their source and they did it in a sealing filing, in a sealed mm. filing. So 
here we've got this election denier outfit that's all over the place uh, going after Connect. And here we have Connect suing the same outfit, which I guess is not that far from QAnon, it sounds like, from the stuff I read. Uh, going, They're fighting with each other. Uh, and, you know, I think TrueVote had a pretty bad week, too. I think you had a worse one. But TrueVote didn't come out of this smelling like roses. Either. I don't think TrueVote, I don't think they're based in California. No. And they're not being charged. You know, none of this is really California related for them. Yeah. More. Yeah. Well, actually, he neither is. Charged, uh, but he's charged in charge. Connect isn't charged, isn't based in California either, but he was charged right. in California. Uh, that's kind of interesting in itself. They, The prosecutors did not want him released. He was released on a million dollar bond in Michigan. He's free now to come back. He'd been claiming he'd been receiving death threats. He may well have, and his family too, by the election deniers. You know, like you point out, there's a lot of irony here. There's a lot of, it's a strange case and it's, believe me, we'll have to wait a while till we get to the bottom of it but this was more fun to talk about than a lot of these uh yeah. <laughs> than a lot of these uh, worst weeks you know this yeah. is just there's it's very weird yeah welcome to california welcome to michigan what can i tell you you know welcome to elections so and then you know speaking of elections and speaking you know paul mitchell talked about uh the la mayor's race which uh according to him you know it seems like it's tipping a little bit towards bass or has been and maybe a little less than it was but uh because I'm the only one that cares. I note that Gavin Newsom still has not endorsed in the LA mayor's race, uh, but I see that he did endorse in the local uh, local race for uh, between Angelique Ashby and Dave Jones. And so, you know, he is paying attention. It's not like he's not paying attention that there's an election coming up that he could be endorsing candidates uh, on a dem on dem race, yeah. but uh, still well, no endorsement. So we're, we're waiting. I think if you keep going after him, you're going to, you know, he's going to have to put the pedal to the metal. You're going to have to, he'll probably come one way or another, maybe the day before the election. I don't know. Or maybe he'll just ignore it and go, who cares? You know, <laughs> Anthony York is probably telling him, don't pay any attention to what Capital Weekly says. Yeah, of course. I don't blame him. Yeah. Tim Foster, thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. Uh, this is John Howard saying we'll talk to you around. Take care. The Capital Weekly podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.